the optimal life. Good old Cleveland, Ohio. What, what do you come out here for? Uh, my wife's family is in Moreland Hills. That's where my family is. Oh, funny. <laughs> Uh, welcome. Welcome, man. Uh, so, you know, my area very well, you know, the, yeah, the I don't know Cleveland, the city. If you're in, if you're in actually Cleveland proper, I'm not there very often, but we're in the suburbs all the time. Right. Yeah. Moreland Hills is a beautiful place. Yeah. So, uh, I I've looked at your background and huh? I think I came across you. you. You did an article on Jordan Harbinger who was on my show once, uh, oh, last yeah. year. Yeah. Jordan's a friend. And, uh, and then I started looking at you, you know, you've been on some big podcasts. You've been on with Gary V. You've been on with Lewis house, Jordan, yep. of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me put you on the spot. Who, who's been your favorite host so far? Uh, are we recording or are we just, we chilling? are, what do we do? Oh, we're recording. We're recording. Um, <laughs> uh, then I love them all. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, you know, the funny thing about doing those big shows is that everyone has incredibly different styles. And when I am doing those shows, I am often really feeling like the pressure is on to make every moment of them count because they've got large audiences. I want to engage those audiences. I talked to all three of them when my book had come out, so I wanted to interest those audiences in my book. And you can really psych yourself out doing that, I would say that of those three experiences, the one I enjoyed the most was Jordan because it felt the most low stakes because I know Jordan the best of those three guys, but I know Lewis and I know Gary too. And I, and I've, I've had really nice experiences with them all. Um, but you know, when they, when they hit record, you feel like, Ooh, it's go time. We got to do this. And, um, sometimes that can be a hard thing to, to turn on. So, uh, when I think of those experiences, I always think of uh, a little anxiety. Sure. And you know what it is and how hard it is to develop an audience because you have your own podcast. And That's right. you get to go through the trials and tribulations and look at the stats and what's sticking, what's not sticking. So when you look at a guy like Jordan, who's got millions of downloads coming through every month, mm-hmm. kind of did it started independent. I know he's with uh, one of the publishers now, but yeah. that really makes you appreciate what they've got going on, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I've spent my career in media. I understand the challenge of reaching and accumulating an audience. And I think the thing that people misunderstand is that they think that it's all just about the quality content. Actually, I hate the word content because it makes things sound like widgets, but for lack of a better word, that it's all just about quality content. And it's not. I mean, it is that. It has to be that. That's the foundation. But you have to be really, really smart strategically smart about how you're crafting things for an audience, how to think about the thing that you're putting out in the world as a product. Jordan and Lewis and Gary and all these, all these folks are incredibly strategic. They are at once excellent communicators, but they are excellent marketers. They're excellent product designers. And Jordan doesn't and all of them they don't do anything by accident. I mean, they'll test and they'll try new things. And you know, Gary in particular is 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 such an advocate for that, for kind of experimenting in public. And I really love that about him. But they're not just doing something to do something. They're doing something because it's building towards something. And if you don't apply that level of constant rigor and appreciation for what it takes to actually build things, not just create things, then you'll never build the kind of audiences that they have. 
Mm. Well, you speak of build, and, and of course, we're going to get to your book, Build for Tomorrow. Uh, but I want to first get to you. Sure. Because you had quite a, a journey, and I like what you talk about. You talk about the plan B versus plan A. You have a different word for it. But talk to us a little bit about adapting plan B versus plan A, and, and we'll take it take it to your own uh, situation and, and where you started and now where you're at. Oh, sure. Well, you know, it's a whole long journey, but I have found that the most successful people are the most adaptable. And it's not something that people seem to be born with. It's a skill that you can learn. And I wanted to understand it better because it seemed to be the underlying driving force for long-term success. And, you know, it's just, you watch people and some, particularly in the pandemic, for example, let's say, beginning of the pandemic, everybody went through the same change at the exact same time and then radically diverged in what they did next. And it's so interesting to see how some people will use fear as a propulsion forward, while others will use fear as something that holds them back. And I wanted to know what the difference maker was. What is it that drives people to be able to say, you know, this thing is changing and I am in an uncomfortable place and I'm going to be okay with that and identify something new. And other people just seem to kind of grind out. And um, so that's that's the work that I've really devoted myself to, to doing is understanding how people do that. So how did you do it? You were you were bouncing around. You were going from magazine to magazine, yeah, newspaper to newspaper. Mm -hmm. You weren't fully fulfilled. Is that correct? Well, what does that mean? Fully fulfilled? You know, I was on a journey and I knew that the thing that I was doing wasn't 100% the thing that I aspired to do. But I also didn't really have a full vision of what it is that I wanted to do. I don't know that any of us do. And if you have a very hyper-specific idea of the thing that you want to do, I will caution you that it's likely not as good as you think it is. And that if you limit yourself and your decisions based on one particular outcome, you will turn down all sorts of amazing opportunities along the way. It's the reason why Malcolm Gladwell told me when I interviewed him a long time ago for the magazine, he told me self-perceptions are powerfully limiting. And I think that's a really, really astute observation. Self-perceptions are powerfully limiting. If you have a very specific idea of who you are and what you do, then you will turn down all sorts of opportunities to explore beyond that. And so through most of my career, I mean, look, there were phases of my career where I was doing work that was less satisfying in phases of my career where I was doing work that was more satisfying. But my very first job out of college was a small town newspaper. And I understood that I didn't want to be there. I also understood that it was a it was a place that I needed to make my way through. I needed to learn things. I needed to be aware of what I had and what I didn't have. I think it's really important. This is not language that I had back then, but I do now to always be asking yourself three things. Number one, what do I have? Number two, what do I need? Number three, what's available? Because when you ask those, you will start to assess where you're trying to go, what you actually need to get there, and then what steps can you take today, not what's available tomorrow, in the future, in some abstract sense, what's available today to get there. And that led me to take risks, to quit jobs, to try on new styles of writing, new approaches, new identities, to move from Boston to New York for... and and. Um, and you know, even today, 
I mean, you might say from the outside, oh, well, he figured it all out. No, I didn't. Um, I mean, I, I have a cool job, editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. That is that gets me a lot of stuff. It's great. Uh, I worked hard for it. And, uh, you know, I've done a whole bunch of other things that I had aspired to do, wrote books, make podcasts, I speak, you know, make nice business doing that. Um, but you better believe that a lot of my focus is not just on like marinating in that. It's in saying, okay, what does all this enable now? Mm. What is the next step? Because this can't be the goal, the end goal. What are we going to just like, it's, you know, just stop. It doesn't work like that. So yeah, it's always balancing that finding some satisfaction in what you have with what you want to build towards. Mm. Okay. So you're, you're grateful in the moment you're learning, but you were constantly looking to move constantly looking for more, more challenge, more stimulation. You went from, I believe you were at Maxim before entrepreneur. Was that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So what was it about when you're at Maxim for several years or however? Yeah, nine months. It was a short stint, but yeah. So you're at Maxim for nine months. What is it about that where you're going, how do you end up going from there to entrepreneur? Because I was seeing, I was evaluating my career based on skill sets. So to me, it wasn't a matter of going to a particular magazine because I was interested in the subject matter. It was about what skills can I develop in this opportunity? And I think it's really important as a way to think. Because if I limited myself just by what thing I happen to be super interested in, I mean, I wouldn't take jobs that would help me grow. So back in my newspaper days, I thought I need to be figuring out how to be a magazine editor. Then I got to Boston Magazine. That was my first magazine job. And the goal was just to learn magazine style, editing and writing. And um, it was mostly short form, very short articles. Eventually, then I got a job at Men's Health. The job there was to work at a national level, right? Just how do I work at the kind of level of execution and experience that I belong in national magazines? And then also uh, learn all the different styles of editing um, that were available to me. Uh, Men's Health is a very uh, package-heavy magazine, which is to say lots of short things, lots of charts, lots of really creative magazine making. Uh, then I wanted to make sure that I was learning long form, writing and editing three, 4,000 word stories. I left and I went to Fast Company to do that. I, at the time, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really care about business. But I was very interested in that skill set. I knew it was the next skill that I needed. If I was looking ahead at where I wanted to go, I needed to start to build the steps towards getting there. You can't just say you want to go somewhere and then just like hope that it happens. You have to figure out what it actually takes step by step to get there. So that's why I went to, to, to Fast Company. And then I wanted more management experience. And that's what I was able to get at Maxim. That's why I went to Maxim because I was going to be a deputy editor, which meant that I was going to have people reporting to me. And did I care about Maxim? No. In fact, I was kind of embarrassed to be there, to be honest with you. But it was a, it was, it got me the management experience that I wanted. And then, why were you embarrassed, Jason, to be there? I mean, because I'm not a Maxim dude. Because Maxim is a, I mean, Maxim has a reputation, longtime reputation for being a magazine for frat boys, and that's not my vibe. Uh, that's not what I do. Um, it's not how I relate to people. Uh, but it was it was going through a really interesting shift. They had hired their first ever female editor in chief. Uh, she had come from T, the New York Times style magazine. Her name's Caitlin Fear, and um, and I thought, all right, well, people are watching this. It's interesting. It's going through a shift. I can I can get my hands in there and I can start to shape this myself. 
and I can get the management experience that I wanted. And so I did. And nine months later, I decided this place isn't really for me, but also executive editor at Entrepreneur was available. And I started talking to Entrepreneur and uh, got the job and then uh, became editor-in-chief a year later. And it was only then that I realized, ah, I now have an opportunity to actually think bigger than just being media because now I can be an authority in this community. And it took me a long time to then figure out what that looks like and how to start to work my way up that, which is now what I do. And again, I, I, the reason I tell you this is not because I think people will be invested in my own journey, because who cares? It's my journey. You have your own journey. But rather to show you what I think it looks like to build and to grow fast, which is to always be aware of what do you need what do you have and what do you need and what's available? Another way of thinking about it is, uh, this is every job that I ever took, I thought two things. Uh, or rather, rather at the moment in which I thought about leaving jobs, I would think, um, what do I need to learn and have I learned it? So I took that job at Men's Health to learn that particular kind of editing. Three years later, what did I need to learn? Okay, got it. Did I learn it? Yes. Okay, it's time to go. It's time to go. What am I going to do? Sit around and like just do the thing I've already learned? The hell is the point of that? Like, it's time to learn the next thing, because otherwise, the only thing I'm going to be qualified to do is the thing that I'm already doing, and that's not growth, that's stagnation. So I kept moving. Mm. So what does that mean? You've been editor in chief for almost seven years now. Yeah. What exactly does that mean, editor in chief? What are, What are your roles and responsibilities? So every magazine, every every the editor in chief job title appears at every magazine and every media outlet. And now also at a lot of startups and stuff. And it means different things, different places, but I'll tell you what it means for us. So at, at Entrepreneur, um, I am the, I, so I am day-to-day -day responsible for uh, running the print magazine and everything involved in there, you know, assigning, editing stories. I have a great, amazing, talented team that I work with to produce that booking covers, you know, whatever. Um, and then I am also involved at a senior strategic level with every other part of the business that involves some kind of editorial. So, um, so uh, you know, what's our brand voice and how do we approach and relate to audiences? And, uh, you know, uh, the books division is thinking about what its next slate of books are. And so I'm, you know, there's a, there's a guy who runs that. I don't, but I'm involved in those conversations, make sure that I'm bringing the perspective of, of the brand and the voice. Um, digital too, you know, I, I, I'm not editing every digital story. It's impossible. Um, uh, we, we have a great uh, digital director, uh, Brittany, who is in charge of all that, but I'm involved at a senior level of those conversations. And then I'm also face of brands. So um, that means that uh, on sales calls, I'm on sales calls talking to um, you know our clients uh, and uh, making sure that I'm able to articulate the brand and our mission and our audience. Um, I'm out there uh, representing the brand on television, on podcasts, uh, at events. Um, you know, uh, the editor in chief job is to is to kind of um, oversee the voice of a brand and uh, and um, and represent it. So editor in chief, you basically you're you're the head honcho outside of the owner. You're running the company. Is that fair to say? No, I wouldn't say that. No, because um, because you know we have a great team and and um, and I'm my primary responsibilities are on the editorial side. So I inv I'm involved in the business side, right? Um, but I don't run sales. 
I don't run the sales team. I don't run the product team. Uh, I work with them very closely, uh, but I wouldn't say, I, you know, I, I don't run the company. But, you know, I mean, it, it, at, at any media company, certainly an editor-in-chief is, 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 a, is an important role. Okay. So you're part of the executive team, we'll call it. Sure. And everything, you have the, the final say in editing. Uh, you mentioned at one of your earlier destinations that you learned quite a few different editing styles. Uh-huh. So let me ask you, what style do you use now at Entrepreneur, or does it vary based upon the article? It varies based upon the article. I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, if you flip through a magazine, you're going to see short articles, you're going to see longer articles, you're going to see sidebars, you're going to see bitsy things, you're going to see a page with three items on the page, you're going to see a page with one item on a page. All that stuff requires different modes of thinking. And you know, I, I need to be able to, I need to be able to take a lot of information and the word in magazines is package, package the information so that, uh, so that it's, uh, it's digestible, it's navigatable. Um, you know, I need to have an understanding of design, uh, or at least, uh, you know, generally speaking, how to fit things onto pages. I, I, you know, I, I usually will sketch hand sketch out what a page should look like and then give it to our creative director. Um, not because he couldn't figure it out himself, but because, you know, it's helpful to articulate what it is that I'm thinking so that he can make it a lot better. Um, so, you know, look, this is, this is what we all do as we grow in our careers is that we are constantly adding skills. And then we are in increasingly complex situations where we have to use and combine those skills. Um, you know, sort of not any different from, I guess, <laughs> I don't know, you play a video game, you play Zelda. And at the very beginning, you have one weapon and it's like a wooden sword or something. And then as you progress through the game, you pick up more weapons and skills and you know your way around more and you become a more versatile player. Um, doesn't mean that you just like use one thing the whole time. Actually, the whole point of it is that you should build an ever-growing arsenal of skills and abilities and then know how to use and combine them and create new ones along the way. So versatility counts. Um, what's something painful? Your editor-in-chief, speak about your own experience. Maybe it's different for other editors-in-chiefs, but what's what's a pain point when you're working at such a large magazine um, that you have to deal with regularly? Like a pain point in my own job or like a pain point that we're trying to solve for other people? Pain point in your own job. Uh, well, pain point of my own job. Um, I mean, media is a challenging industry and it often means that you have to do more with less and that's not fun. You know, people want to do more with more. Um, and so when you have a tight budget on something and it means that you have to rethink how you're doing it. Uh, that's not fun, you know, and that's not just entrepreneur. That's the entire industry. But I'll tell you that there is also a lot of freedom in restriction. And uh, I mean, I remember talking to Ryan Reynolds about this when I interviewed him for the magazine. And you know, he he said because he he has this advertising agency, Maximum Effort, and he said that he really loves tight budgets not because he likes tight budgets, but rather because it forces the creative team to be really focused on what's going to ultimately matter in this thing that they're making. How are we going to connect to people? You give people infinite budget and what they will do with it is 
in you know, I mean, Ryan's example was they'll like have like alien invasions and buildings exploding, right? But buildings exploding and alien invasions are not the thing that people remember. It's not what connects with people. So what if you have a smaller budget that really focuses, forces you to just focus on human connection and storytelling and the thing that's going to resonate with people? Um, and I've definitely found that to be true with the the editorial team, uh, you know, and 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 beyond uh, at Entrepreneur, which is to say, you know, we don't have the same resources that like Vogue does or NBC News does or something. Uh, we're a, we're a family owned company, and uh, we got to be really really smart about our spend. But you know what that means? That means that we we instead of um, having a whole ton of people who are going to spin wheels. Um, we have an incredibly tight, talented team of people who are going to be left to their own skills and execute at the a really high level. And I, I mean, I look back at when I worked at magazines with double, triple, quadruple the size of the team. And I would just think about like, what did I do one of those days? And I would show up and I'd work on for like three hours on like finding the funniest caption in a magazine and like to put on a photo, a caption on a photo. But you know what? Not a single person in the world bought a copy of that magazine because the, the caption was funny. Like It wasn't actually a good spend of time and spend right. of resources, but it was what we were doing because we had so many more resources. So when you shrink resources, what you do is, uh, this is a line that I use all the time um, on, on myself and I've shared with my team is, um, how do we do the best work with the resources available? That's what matters. Like don't spend around, don't sit around trying to like figure out what you would do with more resources. Who cares, right? And don't compare the work that you're doing to what you might've done if you had double the budget because you don't. So instead, what are the best, what's the best work you can do with the resources available? I, I think about that a lot. Jason, why do so many people struggle with embracing change? Because change feels like loss. Because decades of psychological research have confirmed loss aversion theory, which is that we naturally are more inclined to protect against loss than we are to identify and pursue gain. And uh, so when change happens, the first thing that we do is we start to think about the things that we're comfortable and familiar with. And we see that as uh, something we're now going to lose and we want to protect it. And we extrapolate from it. If I'm going to lose this, I'm going to lose that. I'm going to lose this other thing over there now. And it feels like the bottom's falling out. And that's really scary. And you help people in this this is one of your missions and your book built for tomorrow, I believe touches on that. So talk to us a little bit about your book. It came out last year. Yeah. Uh, built for tomorrow. Uh, there's four, I believe there's four tenets or, or four phases that you talk about. Why don't you take us through those real quickly if you could? Yeah, sure. So yeah, th this is, the book is a guide to how to find new opportunities in times of change and disruption in your work, in your life. And it's the framework is that, we all experience change in four phases. Panic, adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back. Wouldn't go back being that moment where we say, I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. And that is the thing that is available to all of us. And I think- Let me just interject real quick, yeah. if you don't mind. When you say wouldn't go back, that's kind of that aha moment, I believe, where the person at one point in their life thought, I can never get there I don't want to leave what I have here in this cozy spot that I'm in. Mm -hmm. Yet now, once they get to that fourth phase, they could never imagine being where they once were. That's exactly right. Okay. And that's going to happen. It's going to happen to you, whoever is listening to this right now. It just will. It already has. Like you've already done it a number of times. And 
you know, in ways large and small. And the more that we can operate with the faith that that is available to us, that like the thing that we might lose is not the only thing that we should have ever had, the more we can start to pursue the growth that we cannot anticipate. You talked on the podcast, I think it was with Jordan, how mm -hmm. when the book first came out, you were at the bookstore and the thrill that you got from signing copies or talking with people and yada, yada. Yeah. What is that like? I mean, it's, it's awesome. It's also totally normal. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's funny how large experiences when you have them, uh, just feel like experiences, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, like when you're sitting there with the book and the in Times Square and, and you're on the billboard behind you, yeah, it just becomes I mean, a normal thing. Well, I, the, I mean, in time, yeah, but even still, sure. I mean, look, like the the let, let me take it outside of me and then I'll bring it back to me. I remember reading uh, this this blog post or something from Ryan Holiday. Uh, Ryan Holiday is a best selling author many times over, and he wrote about what it feels like to be a to become a New York Times bestseller. And he described this moment, which at least in my memory uh, of what he wrote, I had have it a little bit wrong, was that he was like outside mowing the lawn or something. And he got a call probably from his agent saying that he had reached the New York Times bestselling list. And, uh, you know, great news. Awesome. Amazing thing to hear. Uh, and then the call ends and, uh, you know, Ryan looks around. He's like, well, I'm, I'm still out here on the lawn mowing the lawn. So I guess I'll keep mowing the lawn. <laughs> <you know? laughs> right. And, uh, uh, and, um, and you know, th there's something like if we are the, the reason that he wrote that. And, and I think about this a lot myself is that we, we cannot structure our lives around the assumption that some kind of external event is going to make us feel different and be different because we're not, we're still the same people. And so you got to work on that. And so, you know, doing things isn't, is there like a thrill to it? Uh, a, 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 a moment of satisfaction? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Of course there is. I mean, to be in a bookstore and somebody is buying your book that you spent like a long time making and now they're holding it in their hands and they want you to sign it. That's awesome. Yeah. But also don't forget that like, you don't just like blink that into existence. There was also everything leading up to it. There was, there was the like, six to nine months that I spent writing the proposal. There was selling the book. There was the nine months of writing the book. There was there was like another nine months of editing the book. There was all this planning and um, meetings and a million things. And so by the time that thing comes, it's not like, it, you know, it's not like winning the lottery where like just one day you're like, oh my God, everything's different. No, like you you build towards it. And that's the reason why it doesn't feel like crazy. I, I was, you referenced the New York Times. I mean, you referenced Times Square. Uh, yeah, so the book was on a billboard in Times Square, and I was that was super cool. And the photos of it are amazing. Um, and the the moment of it was just really fun. But again, it didn't happen out of nowhere. I didn't like wake up and I was in Times Square and I looked up and I'm like, oh my god! Right, like we planned it. <laughs> I knew exactly when it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. I was there before. I was waiting around. We're like, okay, here it comes. Right, like it it it's all really exciting and you should work towards these moments, but don't expect these moments to transform you because they will not.
Mm, perfectly said. Build for tomorrow. We've linked it in the show notes. Clearly, that's been your mantra throughout your career. You've been constantly building for the next day, uh, based on my 30-minute brief here, chat here with you. Uh, where can people find you online, social media, website, et cetera? Yeah. So, um, you know, if you check out the book, I would love you to build for tomorrow. Um, I'll give you a couple other things. Uh, number one, you listen to podcasts because you're listening to this. So I have one. It's called Help Wanted, in which each uh, in each episode, me and my co-host is Nicole Lappin, a best-selling money expert. Uh, we bring people on the show who have a work problem and we talk them through it. And in doing so, we hope that we help you with your own work problems. So that's a lot of fun. It's called Help Wanted. And... Um, and uh, and then you can find me wherever you find uh, people. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. Reach out, say hi. And he will respond. I will. Just like just like Dwayne the Rock Johnson responded to him with a voice text after the book came out. So he did. He yeah, did. That's pretty yeah. neat. Uh, I've got one final question for you. Really appreciate the time. Sure. Um, my final question is: Somebody's listening. They yeah. are up and coming. They want to get into journalism. Maybe they're already in journalism. They want to climb the ranks. They want to work at Entrepreneur Magazine one day. What kind of advice do you have for those folks? Don't start by reaching out to Entrepreneur Magazine. <laughs> a lot of people do that. A lot of people are like, it's my dream to work at Entrepreneur. Do you, can I, is there an opportunity? And you know, these people often haven't done anything to build towards it. And the answer is no, there's not an opportunity. Um, the, what you need to do is you need to start building. I mean, I keep using the word build. It's not because it's part of the book. It's just because it's the right word. Um, you need to start building. Identify where you can contribute value and where you can learn and where you can grow and balance impatience with patience, right? I mean, the impatience is great. The impatience drove me. I didn't want to sit around just waiting, but you have to have the patience to know that you have to learn things and you have to know what it is that if you're going to work at national publications, like what do they need? What do they need from you? And what do they need from the people who they're going to hire? I mean, every time, every time I post a job, I get a ton of people who have never done work, anything like this, and they don't seem curious about what it even takes. They just think that they're going to get it. And, mm -hmm. um, and you're not, you're not. So, um, you know, like I, I started as a community newspaper reporter. I, I started a tiny little paper, 6,000 circulation daily newspaper in North central Massachusetts, getting paid $20,000 a year. And I worked meticulously and as fast as I could to identify the skills that I needed so that I could get to the next level. And, um, and I, I, I moved as fast as I could. And I would suggest that if you want to get into this or any field, then you need to step back and say, humbly, what do I need to get there? And then go get it and be mindful and be strategic. And just like we were talking at the very beginning about Jordan and Gary and Lewis building an audience, you know, that doesn't just happen because you say you want it. It happens because you go and you do it step by step by step. Beautiful stuff. Thank you so much, Jason. Really great chatting with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me.